Welcome to the Breaking New Ground podcast, hosted by Joel Pennington, head of product at Vim, where we'll explore new ideas and technologies that are shaping the places where we work, play, and live, both today and in the future. Uh, so how does a musician turn into an architect and end up driving one of the largest changes in the way architects design buildings today? We'll dive into it in today's Breaking New Ground podcast brought to you by Vim. I'm your host, Joel Pennington, and with me today are two people who've put decades into upgrading the way we design, build, and operate the buildings we work, live, and play in. My first guest spends his time developing smart city technology business around the world, Paul Doherty. And returning to the podcast is Errol Wolford, founder and CEO of Vim. How's it going, guys? Excellent, Joe. Thanks for having us. Right on. Okay, Paul, let's, let's get started with you. So you used to be a musician and you were cool? <laughs> At one time, yeah. You know. <laughs> I'm fond of saying that, uh, you know, architecture is actually frozen music. And my okay. thesis in school was about the ratios of mathematical uh, ra- ratios and equations uh, dealing with space. And that as you move through space, uh, that there was a connection between the music of the time and the architecture of its time. So if you take Baroque music, you know, three, four time waltzes, and you move through space, you can actually find a perfect ratio. Or Stravinsky's Ride of Spring and Le Cabousier at the turn of the last century are actually mathematically perfect. The one I did was actually talking heads with Richard Meyer and uh, his work. <laughs> and guess what? It is perfect because of the movement through space and the movement through music. So uh, yeah, it was actually a very uh, easy transition to move from music back into architecture. He was not only a rock star, architect and musician. <laughs> Way back in the day. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was an ice hockey player, and I'm very proud of my New York Islanders beating the Boston Bruins last night, but we won't talk about that on this podcast because I don't want to lose, we don't want to lose the wonderful Boston friends. <laughs> you, when, when you were at Harvard, weren't you playing for their team, and they went pretty far, didn't they? They won uh, the national championship during my freshman year. So uh, yeah, it was uh, it was quite the experience. The uh, the thing that got me though was that uh, there were a lot of scouts, and I was a center, uh, so I, I was a goal scorer. I mostly rode the bench during that season, uh, but uh, subsequently I uh, wrecked my knees um, during a playoff game, and uh, the scouts did, no longer wanted to look at me. So I decided to pick up my music, and that's really where I got involved with uh, transitioning from hockey to music back into architecture. Uh, and yeah, it's been a wild ride. I bet. I think we published you early on too, when we were both younger in the 90s. But that was a cool leading edge book. Can you talk about that, Paul? Uh, well, Errol, you were the one that actually gave me the opportunity because when I went to other publishers, they, they looked at me and said, wait a second, you want to write a book about the internet, but you want the book on the internet. And I said, yeah, because, <laughs> because once I write it, it's going to be obsolete and I have to keep it updated. Could you give me a website? And the other publishers were going, I have no idea what this is about. But Errol, you sat there and you listened. You said, why not? And what we did was we partnered up with uh, uh, the leading on-ramp then to online, which was America Online. And they gave us uh, CDs 
which we then oh, great. Uh, yeah. uh, and we rebranded it to a book called Cyber Places that Arrow published. Um, and people got 1,500 free hours <laughs> to actually figure out how to get online because the internet back then was CompuServe and AOL, right? Oh, but, uh, I think we all remember. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, so before the internet, uh, Arrow believed in it. Um, and I really do. Uh, and I will always say that he provided the on-ramp to the industry so that we accelerated to where we are now, especially with tools like what what uh, is being developed with Vim, uh, you know, right. Vim Vim could not could could not exist in its current format and where I believe it's going without the internet, because I don't think AOL would have served its purpose, would it? <laughs> well, you were you were an on ramp for me. I think you gave the recommendation, and then I was asked to be on the Revit board, but I think you were on, behind in the background getting Leonid uh, to let me get on that Revit board. So I appreciated you doing that for me as well, buddy. So, so yeah, how did that work out, guys? How did the two of you end up uh, investing in the Revit Technology Corporation, being on the Revit board and driving that part of the industry forward? Because uh, I think a lot of people want to know. Man, the history behind it, huh, Arrow? Right. So, so, so the dirty little secret was this: we, um, uh, because of the book Cyber Places, um, it took off uh, and got got a lot of uh, exposure, uh, especially yeah. with national conferences. Arrow and I, and our our good friend Jim Kramer, uh, former uh, executive director of the AIA and the uh, founder of Greenway Group and Design Intelligence, we we were actually during that time of the book. Uh, we were rated, was it number one, Errol, at the AI National Convention because of yeah. what we were doing? You, you actually got a 98, I got a 97, and Jim got a 96. So, <laughs> on, on the for rating. So, you were carrying the team. And poor Jim Kramer, who's actually a much better speaker than me, he, he said he had an off day. But, uh, hey, it was it was fun. It was fun, but what that ushered in, Arrow, was uh, a whole bunch of fun things we were doing on the CyberPlaces site. And one of those was uh, we were taking a look at all the dot-coms back in the late 90s. Right. And a brand new show on CBS called Survivor had just come out. Mm. So I decided to have some fun. Now, at the time, uh, we got involved with things like some online fun tools like Buzzsaw, that Arrow was behind and a yeah. bunch of others uh, that that we knew about and we played with Blue Line Online and uh, just all these famous dot-coms back in the day for our industry. But I decided there were so many of them that maybe we should have a dot-com survivor and we would have people vote to kick a dot-com off the island. <laughs> what happened was the first week we did it, Buzzsaw got kicked off. That was pretty and quick. I'll never that was my and Errol's thing. And Carol Bartz and Carl Bass called me on the carpet and said, wait a second, you're running AEC.com Survivor. And our one was the one that got kicked off. And it's like, maybe you should pull it down. Well, we pulled it down and the San Francisco Chronicle picked it up as a story that we were pressured by Autodesk. 
Oh dear! So pulled back the whole thing. <laughs> so, but but this was the world that we were playing, and it was so much fun because we were intimately involved with a lot of these dot coms because of number one, CMD Group and and Arrow's reputation, and number two, this up and coming thing of the internet, which right. turned into a lot of people coming to both of us and saying, "Hey, you know, could you help us out because." We have a great idea, but you guys have the experience. And there was this one group out of uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts called Charles River Software. And they came out of PTC, which was um, uh, an engineering software group. And uh, Leonid and Erwin and a whole group of really talented folks decided to form up this kernel that actually came from the UK. And PTC did not know parametric te- te- technologies, by the way, they didn't know what yeah. to do with it. And so they said, well, we think that we can create it as a tool for designers, not just engineers. And uh, they created this tool. Um, it was a minimal viable product, but it was called Parametric 3D for CAD. Wow. And I fell in love with it because it wasn't a dot-com. This was a real piece of software with some real heavyweights behind it. So my job was to go around and ask my friends uh, in large architectural firms if they would take a seat and begging and pleading. Because at that time, it was all Bentley or it was Graphisoft or it was Autodesk. And here's this right. little group coming out. Why should we even spend time on this? But it caught enough traction. And Arrow was really interested in this thing to a point where uh, I, I remember when Dave Lamont, the CEO, actually the brand new CEO, came down to Atlanta and met with Arrow. And Arrow swept them off their feet. <laughs> He was, okay. he was brilliant. And uh, Errol was asked to be on the board. Uh, I continued to push for sales as a consultant to them. And they changed their name to Revit. And uh, there's a series of conversations that should really be uh, enjoyed over a bottle of wine because it needs the time. <laughs> but the but the bottom line was that uh, Errol uh, was, was one of the ones that steered the group to consider the Autodesk offers, because uh, at that time, Autodesk was hitting a brick wall. They had a third-party piece of software for AutoCAD called, well, they renamed it Digital Architecture, I believe, but it was SoftDesk at one time, right. and they pulled it together, and, and they faked what became known as BIM, because uh-huh. it was really not designing in 3D, and it didn't have the parametric qualities. And that scared Autodesk enough that uh, you know Arrow and the board steered it in the right direction, and the rest is history. I'm sure yeah. Arrow's kicked kicking himself now because although it was a huge sale at the time, $133 million, Arrow, if I remember right, back in the day. But how many billions is Revit worth right now? $35 billion. Oopsie. Yeah. <laughs> we, well, there's a I lot of effort to get it there. there. I mean, Carl Bass and, and the group did a great job growing it. He uh, he shared with me that, hey, Earl, you guys were only at $1 million. How How long do you think it took to get to five million, I said six months. You know, you guys have Autodesk, uh, which is a nice two D CAD version without a relational database. Now you're moving to a relational database. Gosh, I, I, he goes, Errol, six years to go from one million revenue to five million. So kudos to Autodesk. They hung in there and kept on developing the software and developing the software. Then we had the Great Recession. And guess what? People all of a sudden put to use Revit. And he said their sales went from $5 million to $500 million in the next five years. So uh, Carl Bass and people like Phil Bernstein, other people working there, did an awesome, awesome job. Yeah. Amen. 
So with these storied backgrounds and, and you know, the, the connection between something uh, like music to architecture, which a lot of people won't make that connection on their own without, you know, you helping us, Paul. What other kind of technologies and industries need to blend together to benefit AEC and its pros? I'm on a warpath right now uh, uh -oh. because of the <laughs> idea that we have been focused so much, especially in the world of BIM, on this 3D visualization. Mm -hmm. To be a real designer of the built environment, um, I think that the majority of my brothers and sisters in the architectural profession have done a disservice to the general public in that so. they are not well, they're not thinking about all the senses of the experience. Mm. Why haven't we put sound into BIM? Why haven't we even started to think about smells in design? I know that when I go to a ribbon cutting ceremony inside of a tenant fit out with famous architectural firms, the number one thing I remember smelling is either coffee, VOCs coming up out of the carpet, right. or really, really, really pungent uh, air conditioning uh, smells. Yeah, And that's what I remember. And smell being such one of the major triggers of memory. Why aren't we leading with our senses, the textures that you can touch? Yeah, We're forgetting about the other senses and just thinking about the 3D. I remember being in school, architectural school, and we had, I had this great design professor that turned off the lights one, one, one class, got all the, and made it like a black environment uh, where he took all of the light out. And he had a cassette recorder, uh, a boombox, yep. right? And he had sounds. Uh, and the first sound he put in there, he, I heard faint clicking of heels, of shoes. And it became louder and louder and louder. And he stopped and he said, what is that? I said, it's a cathedral. And he goes, excellent. How did you get that? And I said, well, it sounded like it was a large volume. And I could hear a hard surface. And I just imagined that it would be like a large cathedral. And it was. Why aren't we putting that into our technologies? We have that now. We can do that. Yet we continue to design just through pretty pictures. Mm -hmm. It's like it, it's like dating a mannequin. You know, it looks real good, but it's not a relationship. And yeah. we're all about relationships and experience. So the challenge that I have to every designer is to think holistically about design. We have one shot at doing this. And the fact that people are focused in on, you know, you have the mafia, uh, you know, that are saying wood timber is the only thing we should do around the world. Well, good luck with that with the price of lumber today. I could build a building out of gold bricks and it'd be cheaper, right? Yeah. Um, and then you have the other hand of people saying, oh, never use concrete ever again. And you've got these, you know, woke cancel culture type of people out there like ber berating other people about using these materials. I'm going, you guys aren't even thinking through what a real design is. And really thinking through why you take certain types of materials in certain climates and design around the the people. Yeah. Um, I'd love to see how many people that are saying that they are technologically advanced inside of our industry, how many data scientists do you have uh, either as consultants or on staff? And then I challenge you one step further. How many of you have cultural anthropologists so that you're actually thinking through what the program is of creating space? Because as you're starting to berate everyone else for using materials and everything else, how about the mistakes you're making because you think architecture is about space and sight when it's about the total human experience? I have no opinions on this, by the way. 
No, no, none. And and Errol, actually, you talk a little bit about your concept of faces, and that sounds um, apropos here, but it, it does a it involves the wellness of a building, and wellness is obviously not just what it looks like, but how it treats its occupants. And I think smell it part is of that. the function, the aesthetic, the cost, the environment, and the safety of the building. Those need to be balanced not only by the architect incorporated by the constructors you know the function of the building uh, one of the things i think about 15 percent of the people who go to the hospital get sick at the hospital that's not a good thing that's not very well i think that that's a repeat business play by the hospitals <laughs> yeah. well who who knows but it's not a good thing whereas in scandinavia and then ireland actually dropped theirs from 15 percent to less than five percent so so they got the idea of function or the aesthetic. Hey, I, I was a genetic major. I think uh, architects are genetically transcribed, inscribed with aesthetics. So they don't need to do anything else in aesthetic. They are sure. awesome geniuses normally there. The cost, well, they don't even want to get around cost. Uh, so I was part of a company called RS Mains, and we thought we were going to be clever. And early on with Revit, we hooked cost and Revit objects. And we're getting within 15%. Architects didn't want anything to do with that. That's that's unfortunate for the owners. And, uh, of course, the environment and the safety of the building. Environment build, being, you know, as, as you mentioned, the productivity of the people in the building would be a lot better if we balanced these things. And over the course of the 25 to 50 years of a building, if, if you raise the productivity of the people through appropriate oxygen, uh, less carbon and CO2, all of a sudden they would be happier, more productive. That's that's the holistic thing that I love when Paul talks about that. Yeah. We're part of an organization together called the Design Futures Council. And yeah. Joel, this is a group that was originally co-founded by Dr. Jonas Salk. All right. uh, at the later half of his career, he felt that the built environment has a physiological effect on the healing process. And he wanted to have a think tank that would explore exactly what Errol's talking about, the indoor air quality, lighting, color, the spatial relations, and how that affects people's attitudes, their mental health, their physical health, to heal and get better. And I think it's fascinating that we're now at a position where this is no longer theory, but being put into practice uh, by groups like Delos and their Wellness Institute, and really putting fantastic measures in place that's bringing together groups like the Mayo Clinic and other leading organizations like that into design conversations. Um, I think that that has a bright future, uh, especially since we are living in the age of the pandemic. Yeah. COVID-19 is just yet another one, but are we going to be better prepared for not just us, but our kids and their kids? And how can we build a built environment that doesn't exacerbate the problem, but becomes resilient? And yeah. I think that's the great challenge of our time. And Jonas Stock's son is a psychiatrist. And for mm -hmm. the last 12 years, every year he comes to our meeting in San Diego and just offers such a great for architecture, psychiatry, and, you know, the holistic, uh, not only medicine, but holistic architecture. 
and yeah, but being a designer, I definitely need that psychologist because I need I I need therapy sometimes. <laughs> right, Errol, what's it like working with Paul? I mean, the two of you go back a long ways now. Tell us a little bit about that relationship. Well, Paul's a rock star in our industry, and I've never seen a more creative person than Paul. It's 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 awesome. Hey, this concept of smart cities isn't just a fad, isn't it? And Paul and uh, IBM work together with that concept of smart cities. He's been working quite intensively in China with Xi Jinping and other things on the environmental side. And it's so cool just to hang out with them and tag along with him. Uh, but he is truly leading edge. Your $20 is in the mail. Thank you, Aaron. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad we got that sorted. Um, so, Paul, it sounds like what what you want to do is make smell-o-vision a reality. Ah, well, that's only one piece of it, isn't it? <laughs> you know, because you're, you're right. You know, there, we need immersive theater, but we need it for the buildings that we just work in. Right, right. Well, but now here, now here comes a really interesting word: authenticity. Right? Do you make stage sets so that things smell better, or taste oh, better, yeah. or touch better? So, are you creating a Walt Disney? Disneyland that is fantasy land or are you really getting down to the authenticity of what makes a place a place and special and, and that idea of placemaking is fascinating to me yeah especially when we have projects that are currently underway that are challenging us to reimagine how do you bring disparate people together uh neom being one of them mm. uh, where you have the idea that you want to have a place that can be tolerant, can be inclusive into an area that their society has never been about that. So how does a tiger change its stripes? And going through that process, we are looking at bringing things like Syrian refugees together with very, very high affluent people into a very condensed new country. So if this is really meant to be the United States of the Middle East, are they really going to do that? Right. Or are they going to fall into making this just another Dubai only for rich people? Mm. But when we're starting to think about it, the one thing that we're looking at, and it's really funny how architecture brings together so many diverse things that make us human, is food. Mm. And what we're focusing in on is not making like a camp for the refugees and then, you know, sprawling, uh, you know, villas and McMansions for the rich people. We're looking to create an environment where people collide. And it does, collisions don't need to be violent. What they need to do is start to bridge and, and bring about newness. And one of the things that we're focused in on is vertical farming okay. and the exchange of food in a communal setting where you would have people that have always done that Syrian dish, but they're next to people from Italy and they, and they, and they can talk. Now, in first, we're not expecting everyone to sing kumbaya and mix everything, but over time, the kids, We'll start to play together. Mm. The idea of food being that bridge, creating a sense of community where the architecture then is designed around that celebration. And, you know, I think the thoughtfulness behind that is, is now at a point where people are looking for that leadership and that inspiration that we don't need to be creating ghettos and areas and enclaves that you look like me, you dress like me, you eat like me. Now I'm part of a community. Right. When you're doing something new, 
how wonderful to be able to say, no, we're human first, which is why I think a lot of uh, what we're looking at, you know, as we move forward uh, after the pandemic is this idea of medical and healthcare and wellness being a form of diplomacy hmm. uh, that can help uh, where we're looking right now at a project uh, in the West Bank of all places uh, called the Jericho Center for Medical Diplomacy focused in on women's breast cancer. Now, there's something that the Palestinians, the Israelis, and other Arabs can look at and say, that's about my mom, that's about my, my wife, that's about my daughter, and let's focus in on something that we all get together behind. So again, I think that there's a lot of good in the world. I think that you know having leaders like Arrow and the work that is being done at FIM will help expedite that communication about how to get to that next level of, of well, you know, why are we doing all this? You know, it's not just to make money because there's other ways of making money than being an architect, trust me. Probably easier <laughs> ways, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure that, you know, being a visionary like you are, Paul, and, and you, Errol, it doesn't come without controversy. Um, you know, you guys have been banging the drum, beating the drum of, of the future for the built environment for many, many years. But what what are some of these these roadblocks to that vision becoming reality? Hmm. Well, Harold, uh, let me lead out with something, and then I'd love to get your perspective on it because you and I have talked a lot about you know rolling the boulder up the hill. <laughs> but the scary part being once you reach the top of the hill, the boulder starts chasing you like Indiana Jones. Right. So. <laughs> The resistance to change of digital transformation in our industry is due to the fact that many of the roles within the construction and design process are contingent on making money off those inefficiencies, uh -huh. um, self-sabotage, blaming the technology instead of really blaming the individual. Um, the idea of technology will always create a, a microscope onto the process and if people are seen as making money off the inefficiencies, they'll be the first to blame the technology where, where then it doesn't become adopted, especially in the field. Yeah. Uh, having lived it, literally lived it and watched um, sabotage happen either through non-use, uh, unwilling to take a chance on a new process uh, and falling back into comfort zones, it's about the humans, uh, which is why I don't think we'll ever have an easy button but what we do have is this change of the guard in our industry where labor led a lot of the decisions that have been made. But since we have not done a good job of recruiting on many sectors, both in the subcontractor level all the way through uh, the leadership uh, of, of designers and are trying, but only a half-hearted try, in my opinion, of really looking at diversity, of bringing different viewpoints in based on communities, because this idea that you have a, you know, a process and a design, just because it works in Cleveland does not mean that it works in Orlando. Right. Right. Um, we really have to look more at the community, about those humans, about what those needs are, and build space around those ideas. That's what we're great at. But unfortunately, you know, as we start getting into those processes and people blame tools, we're getting now to a point where we're starting to see emergence of different delivery systems because people still need shelter. And I think that's the one thing that Errol and I have talked about for years, is that we have a very noble cause in our industry, mm -hmm. um, yeah. in that there's, there's four things that keep the human species alive. 
on our spaceship Earth, because this is a spaceship, we're just hurtling through space right now. We're not the center of the universe. And the idea of keeping the environment is not for the Earth. We're not here to save the Earth. We're here to save the environment of the Earth so that our species can survive and thrive, right? Because the Earth is going to be fine. If it turns into a dust bowl, the Earth doesn't care. Yeah. We care, right? So if that's the case, we need fresh air, we need clean water, we need safe food, and we need shelter. And I hope that anyone listening to this podcast in, in, in our industry will take it to heart that every morning you should wake up very proud that we have a nobility about what we do every day. And if we can take that more seriously, I think that we'll start to see things like, you know, the industrialization of our industry not, not being looked upon as a bad thing, but how people and subtrades can now start to assist that process of, of the design for for manufacturing and, 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 and assembly. So that whole DFMA process is going to be one avenue of delivery, I think, that grows because we don't have enough people to build the shelter, the nobility of our human species around the world right now. Yeah. And that's not to say that everyone needs to become an apprentice and uh, you know learn to be a plumber tomorrow. That's not going to happen. So if that's the case, you know the tipping point will be market need along with newer tools that can help communicate design intent to the actual finished product. And it is a product, not a project. Yeah. And uh, you know, let's see how it goes. Um, I, I have, uh, I'm inspired by a lot of the people that I'm meeting, especially in the younger generations coming on, that have that enthusiasm that I know that Errol's had since the minute I met him. Uh, and I don't think Errol's enthusiasm has subsided. It's, I think it's only gone up. <laughs> it gets better with age or something. <laughs> I know we started Vim. I didn't think of the idea. A guy named Chuck Eastman who passed away a year ago and really is kind yeah. of the father of Vim. He challenged me and said, Errol, Revit is awesome, but how do we get collaboration going? The poor trade contractors, the manufacturer reps, and the owners, they're out in the hinterland and the architects and engineers creating this, these Revit models aren't collaborating. If you could take Revit and all the other BIM and put it in a gaming engine and allow everybody to access that, something special can happen with collaboration. Oh, you've been leading us on that. You, you've really brought that new level of what Vim could be, virtual information modeling, working with Epic, working with Unity, even working beyond in an open source software that we share with everybody. Now we could start to collaborate with one another in a powerful fashion. And that is the basic vision of Vim, to allow virtual information to move from a building information model, which is awesome, but only if how to deal with it now to a virtual information model where the architects, the engineers, the contractors, the subcontractors, and the owners are all able to interact with one another. That type of collaboration, I think, is really necessary for us to move ahead. Guys, we're almost out of time. Any final wise words from you, Paul? Wise words, wow. The, I'm no putting pressure. you on a pedestal. <laughs> <laughs> don't 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 say anything, don't say anything dumb, right? So the the biggest growth that I'm looking at right now um, will involve uh, what you guys are building, right? Um, and it's a pathway that I'm seeing 
that is uh, mixing the realities of what what Errol was alluding to with things like Minecraft and Roblox and the world of of Fortnite uh, with with our friends at Epic. What we're looking at right now is the emergence of digital assets, and those digital assets uh, are not just from an instrument of service based on a contract that an architect or an engineer has with an owner. Yeah. Because that's all they're doing right now, right? Like there's a finite time. Now, the architect's responsible for the health, safety, and welfare of the general public. That's why we're licensed. So the actual delivery of drawings or a model to an owner is not really the end of your responsibility, right? Because that's why you hold insurance in case the building fails after you've delivered. But for the most part, the life of the contract is through the design process and then the delivery of the building. Boom. And that's about it. Then what happens is you take that digital asset and it goes on a tape drive, it goes up in the cloud somewhere or just resides in someone's hard drive and it's collecting digital dust. Yeah. Where I'm seeing the largest growth right now is in this world of smart contracts and the world of blockchain. And I'm not talking about Bitcoin or Dogecoin or Coinbase or any of that other bull crap. Uh-huh. I'm talking about real stuff because we built and we're responsible for the digital DNA of the built environment, which means wouldn't it be interesting if through that digital contract that the asset itself, the digital asset doesn't die upon completion of the project of delivery of the building, that the physical asset is only the manifestation of one cycle of the life of a digital asset, which means that we can actually put a digital asset, a fit, like the actual code, on the blockchain. And when you do that, you can actually create a fungible token because blockchain is based on gaming uh, words and gaming theory, right? Which is, let's say you're at an arcade in the old pinball machines, and the more that you play the pinball, the more tokens you got or the more points you got, mm-hmm. right? That's the whole idea about tokens is you're rewarded from the community, which is a bunch of computers that are all saying, if then, that's a contract. And then that then statement says, okay, this particular asset is a digital asset. And guess what? Because the entire community says it's that, we're going to make it a security. And it would be interesting if the Security Exchange Commission came in and would say that this is a certified digital asset. That is a security. That digital asset is tied to the actual fungible building itself, the physical real estate that may have a value of, I don't know, $10 million for that commercial office building. That then becomes what is the baseline of the digital asset's true value as a security. It starts at $10 million. Mm. Now, what do you do with that digital asset? Well, how about trading you know, the ability to uh, spend uh, digital money like they do in Fortnite called V-Bucks, where people can purchase uniforms or become Spider-Man or Captain America, depending on what they want, but they have to purchase it. Yeah. And that's real money, right? Or they want the next weapon. That's real money. And then they join up with their friends and their team they go off. But wouldn't it be really cool if instead of flying into Fortnite Island on a parachute like everyone does, that's how everyone's adventure begins that you can fly into streetscapes or your neighborhood, Times Square, Trafalgar Square, Tiananmen Square, and have your adventure because you've purchased the digital rights of a photorealistic environment that you and your friends want to go on in their adventures. Wouldn't that be interesting? Because now all of a sudden you're splitting that purchase with Epic Games. As long as there's um, smell-o-vision, I think that's the important thing. Ah, 
or, or actually how about haptic and haptic it really scared that's me. right we want all the senses <laughs> so the idea is uh, i think we're on the cusp of of unleashing a market for digital assets that have true monetary value uh, that we're only starting to scratch the surface where the digital asset no longer dies at that at the completion of an aia contract right so here's the challenge to designers as you design the built environment does that design work in the digital environment mm, yeah and is that the new challenge of design of this hybrid quality because what may be really cool with gravity what happens when you're in a game and you don't have any gravity right and is the design really that great so i think the challenge is is set. I think this next generation of designers that have been involved, like what Errol was alluding to with gaming yeah. worlds uh, and Hollywood are going to become more and more and more important because it's going to then dictate how we live our lives in the physical world. And this mixed reality is our greatest challenge today. Well, thank you, Paul. Errol, wise words from you. I'm going to leave it with Paul. I think you <laughs> Fair enough. Close it out so wisely. I'm Thank you, Paul. Well, thank you, Joel. Thank you, Al. Yeah. And uh, much, much success with Vim. Uh, it's an awesome product and it's just, it's in its infancy. I can't wait to see what you guys do with it. Yeah. You guys are the magicians. We're, we're tickled pink with uh, the possibilities that Vim brings. And, uh, and we're out of time. So if you're keen to learn more about Paul's work, please reach out to him at thedigitgroup.com. We'll be posting the link uh, with the podcast. And I want to thank Paul and Errol for joining me today on uh, this edition of Breaking New Ground and the the changes that are having uh, an impact in our industry and that need to occur, whether it is the nobility of the future uh, in design and construction of buildings or something as uh, innovative as uh, leveraging blockchain to create uh, NFTs for our buildings and our spaces. You know, it's always a pleasure to have you with us, Paul. And we're always learning all kinds of new things. So thank you very much. And uh, please join us next time. 